One of the more helpful illustrations, I think, to tell us a little the meaning of Christmas goes something like this. There was this man, he was a good, hard-working family man. He raised his kids and he tried to love his wife. One Christmas, he told his wife, I'm sorry, I'm not going to go with you to Christmas Eve services this year. I'm just not feeling it. I've been thinking that I'm not sure I believe it anymore, and I would feel like a hypocrite if I went in this state of mind to Christmas Eve services. Uh, And so he stayed home. He sat by the fireplace. He read a little bit of the newspaper. And when the snow that Christmas Eve started to come down, he watched it a little bit outside the window. And suddenly, thump, thump, and thud. Something was hitting the window. At first, he thought somebody must be sitting outside throwing snowballs at the window. So he decided to go and open the door and see who was out there. He did. There was nobody there. Nobody there except a few small birds huddled on the ground outside the door. For some strange reason, he felt compassion for these birds. And so he looked at the birds. He thought, they shouldn't be sitting out here on Christmas Eve. They need to be warm. They need to be safe, protected from the storm. Suddenly he thought to himself, aha, I'll take them to my kid's barn, to the barn where they they put the ponies. So he threw on his boots, he threw on his coat, and he went out to the barn, and he opened the barn doors, turned on the light, thought, certainly the birds will come now. They didn't. He went and got some breadcrumbs and some bird food, and he made a little trail to the barn. They'll follow that for sure. No. Then he tried to gently herd and shoo the birds toward the barn. They, of course, flew every direction except for the way he actually wanted them to go. So he thought to himself, what am I going to do? he realized that to the birds, he was a big scary monster. They were frightened of him. They were terrified of him. They did not trust him. They did not know that they could listen to him. And he said, what am I going to do? If only I could could get down to their level and tell them not to be afraid. Tell them that they can trust me. Tell them that they can follow me and they will be safe and they will be warm and it'll all be okay. So he said, well, I I guess I have to become a bird. At that moment, the church bells began to ring, playing, O come all these faithful. And he sank to the snow on his knees. Now, that's a a cute story. I have no idea if it's true or not, but it helps us see the meaning of Christmas. We need to be rescued by somebody, and we are foolishly and stupidly sometimes flying into the window, trying to get to the places where we think we can find warmth and safety. The one person in the whole world who could actually lead us there is waving his arms at us, saying, this way, guys, let's go. And we won't follow. What we need is somebody to come among us and become one of us and say, it's okay, you can trust me, you can follow me. I will lead you to safety. And 
That's what God has done in Jesus. He became that man among us. He called us to follow him, to go after him, and to find the safety, to be rescued from all of the storms, sin, sickness, death, everything. And the only question of Christmas is, do we follow? Do we go? The light has come among us. There's that guy saying, this way to the barn. Do we actually follow him? It's not a foolish question to ask, especially when you look at today's lesson. Look at today's lesson. John preaching out in the wilderness. He's teaching, he's baptizing people. John is a pretty eccentric guy. He's gained a huge following, many of whom are very religious people, Pharisees and Sadducees and all the big religious leaders of the day. And we don't think it would be an exaggeration to say that there were hundreds of people there listening to him. John says, look, the Lamb of God. And I bet he even pointed at him. And how many people went after Jesus? Did hundreds follow him? Did dozens follow him? No. How many? Two, right? Two. Hundreds of people. All of the biggest and the fanciest religious leaders of the day, all of the people who knew their Bibles inside out, two walked after him. It's not a foolish question to say, if somebody comes and says, follow me this way to the barn, this way to safety, this way, and it'll all be okay to ask Will we actually follow him? Or will we keep flying into the window, stupidly trying to save ourselves? And that's what God wants us to do today, to take a little inventory, right? to look at our hearts. That's why he asks later on, what do you want? What do you want? It's epiphany, and at peace, at epiphany, we take this time to look at the light that Jesus shines into this world. He brings us the glory of God. And so it's the right time to ask ourselves, do we want to walk in that light? That's what I want to do with you and I today. First, I want to just portray for you, give you a beautiful picture of this light, this glory, this presence, and this power of Jesus in our lives. And then secondly, help you take a little inventory and say, hey, am I living in the light? Those two things. First, John, like me, uses another picture. We've used all kinds of pictures for God's world this morning. The light, the life. John says, look, the Lamb of God. Let's talk a little concretely. What is God's world like? What is this Christmas world look like? First, God, God relates. That's the first thing of God's world. In technical terms, God is triune. He relates to himself and he relates to the creatures around him. He creates or establishes connections. That is his love. He hates the enmity and the division and the separation and the aloneness of this life. He despises the destructive nature of the devil and what he does to relationships in this world. 
God relates. And so he sends his son to reconcile. He reconciles. He takes two things that are apart and he brings them back together. That is the very nature of God's work. He reconciles. If you live in God's world, you will see reconciliation. His son takes within himself the enmity of our world and he swallows it all up. He eats it up. And we might be left with some hostility. You perhaps experience hostility in your relationships, but the enmity has been taken away if you live in God's world. That's the first thing. The second thing of God's world is God creates. He creates. He loves this world that he makes. He loves the grass and the trees and the birds and the flowers and all of the beautiful things that you and I experience in life. He loves all of these beautiful things. And he hates the death and the decay and the destruction that has come into this world. So he sent his son into this world to swallow up death itself. Death has been destroyed from the inside out. And what you and I then will be stuck with, what we'll have to live with if we live in his world, is sickness and sleep, but not death. We experience sickness and sleep as we live in his world. Third thing, God lives in his world. God trues. He trues, T-R-U-E-S-S. He makes things that have been crooked straight. He establishes reality. He brings the truth to light. He hates the lies and the falsehood and the deception that the devil has brought into this world. And so God sends his son to shine the light of truth into all of life. He overwhelms the darkness, and we're left just with shadows. If you feel like it's hard sometimes to see in life, that's because we've got the shadows that have been left as the light overwhelms the darkness for our lives. Fourth thing, God justifies. God loves justice and righteousness. He lifts up the low and he brings down the high and the proud. God does not just want equality or fairness. That's not good enough for him. Everybody can't just have a right, a decent opportunity. God, no, actually, he takes the people who are low and he lifts them up. He raises them up. That's what he does. He rebalances life. And he hates the injustice and the unrighteousness that has swallowed up and eats up our life from the inside out. He hates the mistreatment of people, whether it's the small mistreatment that happens at the grocery store or it's the big ways that the Fortune 500 companies take advantage of you every day. God hates that mistreatment. And his world his son has come into it to take injustice into himself. He then treats people correctly to raise them up. He rips down the high and the haughty, and he absorbs injustice within his own body. And fifth, then, God forgives. God hates the guilt and the fear, and the weight of our wrongs that we carry around all the time on us. 
He wipes it all out. He takes away the evil, the wrongdoing, the punishment, and he gets rid of it all. And he raises up, he lifts off of us the burden. He has sent his son into the world to pay the cost and the price of all of that wrongdoing so that he can, once again, raise us up. And we might be left with a little bit of a burden in our lives. We might have a little bit of a weight, a resentment sometimes, or a bitterness that we have to work through and deal with, but he forgives. That's God's world. And maybe some of you had a little bit of a hard time tracking because it seems like a lot of ideas. It's not just a bunch of random ideas. God has a very specific world for you and I to live in. A world where he connects, a world where he trues, a world where he creates, a world where he justifies, and a world where he forgives. This is God's specific world. And if you are hearing this call, look the Lamb of God and you're following him, you are living in that world. If you do not follow, then you do not just experience sleep and sadness and a little bit of hostility that the rest of us deal with. If you do not follow, you live in a world of death and of darkness and decay and destruction and enmity and injustice. That is your world. God has a very specific world for us. Walmart and Google and Facebook and Microsoft and Apple, they have a world for you too. Right? They have a world for you that is defined by consumption. They want you to be addicted to the dopamine hits of trivial pursuits throughout all of life. Satan has a very specific world for you as well. Satan wants you to live in a world that is filled with self-satisfaction. He wants you to live in a world that is filled with not only trivial pursuits, but the satisfaction of yourself in success and in power and in sex and in money and in all of the other trivial pursuits of life. God's world is a very different world. It's a world where he connects, where he creates, he trues, he justifies, and he forgives. Is that a world you want to live in? Do you want that world? Right, you notice Jesus here in this lesson, verse 38. What does he say? He says to you, what do you want? I think that's a fascinating question. When you read the Bible, when you read the Bible, does the Bible usually speak well or speak poorly about our hearts? What do you think? Does the Bible speak well or poorly of our hearts? You don't have to tell me, just think of an answer quick. Think about John chapter 3, just a few little ways on from this. John goes on and he says, Light has come into the world, but people loved darkness instead of light. They loved darkness. The, the problem with people is not just that we have bad thoughts or the people that were blinded and we're walking around in the dark. Not that we're ignorant. No, it's that we actually loved darkness. People love living in a world of consumption, trivial pursuits, satisfaction, and self-aggrandizement. We love that. Or 
In another place, the Bible says, Jesus himself says, these people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are from, from me. Look at that. The, the problem isn't their behavior on the outside, is it? And, and the problem's not just the way they're thinking. The problem, he says, is it's actually in their hearts. What do you want? Jesus cares about what you want. You know, uh, one of the helpful ways people have pointed out to me to think about sin and how it affects our lives. On the, the first level where we deal with sin, we deal with sin as uh, outward behavior. And then we start to think about it as our opinions, right? The things that we say and think. And then we start to think about it as our beliefs. And then finally we get it down to the structures of our heart, the things that we really want. I always had a hard time with this question, what do you want? And so maybe, maybe let me pitch it to you uh, and, and say, here's another way to think about it. What fills your heart? What are the things that are filling your heart? Because the things that fill your heart, that's what you want in life. I always like this picture. Can you put the next picture up, please? Can you put the, the picture up? Because it, it helps me think about the things that fill my heart. A lot of good things. Family, friends, some money. It's not a, a bad thing always, right? Sports, knowledge, a, a reputation, having power. There's many good things. But are there maybe some not good things, too? What do I want? You know, Jesus comes along with this question, doesn't he? And he says, what do you want? Do you know your heart? It's worth asking as you and I start the new year if we know what we want. If we've taken an inventory of our hearts, if we've heard that word of Jesus that says, what do you want? And we, we start to think a little bit about what's filling our heart. One of, my, one of my favorite stories that I heard recently about a song that what's filling my heart is the story of King Richard. Maybe you know King Richard. He went on the Crusades and he was, you know, the good King Richard, Robin Hood and all of that good stuff, right? You know the story of Robin Hood and good King Richard and evil King John? Okay, good. Everybody's with me now? King Richard went on the Third Crusade, but on the way back from the Third Crusade, he got captured by some some scoundrels, some hoodlums, right? Nobody, nobody quite knows who they were. He got captured by some people. And they did not announce that they had captured uh, King Richard. Now, this, is, this part is real history. We don't know all the details, but they, they didn't say anything about how they, that they had caught him. And so they did not know how to find him. Now, this is the part where, where the tales, the story, the fables of history come together. Supposedly, King Richard and his court musician had written a song together. They had written a song, and the only two people in the whole world who knew that song were King Richard and his court musician. And so to find King Richard, the court musician went out into the whole of Europe, and he went to all of the castles and all of the dungeons, and he sang the first verse of the song outside every dungeon. He just kept going through all of Europe singing these, this song through the dungeons. And he knew that as soon as somebody sang the song back to him that he had found King Richard because nobody else in the whole world knew that song. Eventually, there was a castle supposedly in Germany someplace where he sang the song and he heard back from him, the, heard back from the dungeon the, the second verse of the song and he knew he had found King Richard. 
the song of that musician sang to the heart of Richard. Right? And it filled him in that moment with such joy and hope that he knew he could finally be free. Friends, when God sings to you, what do you want? What do you want? You ought to hear the song, not of a king who comes with armies. You shouldn't hear the song of a, of a teacher who comes just with wise instruction. You should hear the song of the Son of God who comes with the sweetest song of the gospel to your heart and says, what do you want? I have the best thing in the world for you. I want you to be part of my world. I have a world where you can reconnect with all the people that you've been disconnected from. I have a world where lies and evil will not rule over you anymore. I have a world where you will not be burdened down by the weight of your sin. I have a world where death and destruction will not run your life. What do you want? Do you hear that song? Does it sing to your heart? We can tell it's saying to these two disciples' hearts because they went away and they found their brother Simon and they said, we found the Messiah. It was the sweetest song in the whole world. And friends, my prayer for you would be that this song is the song that, that sings to your heart too. That Jesus, this grand court musician, he comes and he sings to you and he says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. And you are, yes, more lost and captured and broken and in the evil prison of the devil. But I have forgiven you and I love you. And let me call you to my freedom. Hear the song. Hear the song of the grand musician who wants you. Can I pray that that song would speak to your heart and you would know exactly what you want because you want his world? Let's pray for that. Lord Jesus, we thank you that as you come into the world, you bring light for us. And we pray that you would, you would sing that song to our hearts and that our hearts would be so filled with the song of your world that we would want to be part of a world where there is connection, where there is truth, where there is justice and forgiveness. Bring us into that world. Sing this song to us, Lord, so that we are filled with what you want. We pray for that in Jesus' name. Amen.